Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Where does sexual orientation come from? This is a question that has long been of interest to scientists. Over the last several decades, hundreds, if not thousands of studies have attempted to address it. And they've uncovered a lot of fascinating insights. But the picture this research paints is a very complicated one, and it suggests that there isn't a simple explanation and that two people might develop the same sexual orientation for very different reasons. So let's take a look at what we do and don't know about the development of our sexuality. In today's show, we're going to talk about the current state of the science and what we know about the roles of immunological, hormonal, and genetic factors in affecting sexual orientation. We're also going to discuss why we know less about the development of sexual orientation in women than in men, as well as some of the complexities inherent in studying the origins of human sexuality. I mean, when we're studying something like sexual orientation, are we talking about a pattern of attraction or arousal, a pattern of behavior, or an identity? These things don't always overlap or line up in the way that you might think. I am joined by Dr. Malvina Skorska, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, Mississauga and at Brock University. She is also in training to become a psychotherapist in order to bridge both research and clinical work. Her research focuses on sexual orientation and gender dysphoria and has been published in leading scientific journals. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're gonna jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer-lasting erections, while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Malvina, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me. It is a pleasure to have you here. So your research looks at the origins and development of sexual orientation. So let me start by asking, what is it that drew you to studying this topic in the first place? Yeah, probably a couple of different things. I was always fascinated with human sexuality in general. It structures a large part of our interactions and our worlds and our worldviews. And so I thought that 
studying human sexuality in general would be fascinating. I met Tony Bogart, who ended up being my PhD supervisor, and he was studying the origins of sexual orientation. And I thought that that was a very fascinating subject because, you know, one of the things that a lot of people occupy their time with and their energy with and their emotions is finding a mate and uh, for whatever reasons, various reasons. So I thought it was a fascinating aspect of mate choice or selecting a mate. Yes, it absolutely is. And we are often influenced by what the work of our graduate advisors is. You know, my graduate advisor, when I was working on my doctoral work, studied romantic relationship commitment. And so that's where a lot of my work started. But then you start to branch out from there as you get more experience and kind of hone in on what it is that you really want to focus on. So thanks for sharing that. Now, before we dive into your research, I wanted to ask you a question about a response that I sometimes get when I post articles on my blog or on social media about the origins of sexual orientation. I've had some people ask, why does it matter? with the implication being that we shouldn't be studying it. And then there are others who say this kind of work could be dangerous because it could potentially be used in ways that would harm the LGBTQ community, such as finding a gay gene and then geneticists trying to eradicate that gene. So I'm curious, how do you respond to critiques like that? And why is it important to study sexual orientation, where it comes from and how it develops? I've also encountered responses like that to my research, a mixture of, wow, this is great. And on the other hand, we definitely don't need to study this. And also the implications, like whether they're genetic or immunological of developing a gay gene or something like that. I think that it's important to study because it gives us insight about who we are. And I think insight about who we are is very important to understand our emotions, our behaviors, our histories. I think that human beings get a lot of relief or happiness from understanding who they are. And I think sexual orientation is one of those things about themselves, understanding who they are. There's a huge heterosexual spin on a lot of things. So And if you don't experience heterosexual attractions, you might be wondering, like, why don't I experience heterosexual attractions? Or maybe I only experience a bit of heterosexual attraction. So why is this the case? And I think the research that we do kind of gives answers into that why question a little bit, or it could provide some insight into it anyways, right? In terms of like an answer to the question of whether or not the research could be used, I guess, like in a more nefarious way. Yeah, I've definitely grappled with that, the ethical dilemma inherent in that. And ultimately, it is not our goal as researchers for the research to be used in that way. So we have, I guess, like no control over what individuals do. In Canada, we're pretty lucky that we have laws where variation in sexual orientation, gender is protected by law. So I don't think any of the research would be used in a nefarious way like that. Based upon the research that we do know, although of course more research could come out later, it seems very unlikely that a gay gene would be discovered or some kind of biological agent would be discovered. Although of course that's just based on what we know right now. Yeah. And I completely agree with everything that you said. I think this work is important 
And in part, it can help to give people some self-understanding and it contributes to our scientific knowledge of diversity in human sexuality. And, you know, there's always that potential concern of how is a given research finding going to be used and is there potential for it to be used in a negative way? And if you always let that hold you back from studying topics, there's a lot of things that would be off the table. So, for example, I previously had Lisa Diamond on the show and I talked about this story back then. You know, Lisa Diamond did pioneering research on sexual fluidity in women and found that women's sexual attractions, behaviors, and identities can change over time. I saw her give a talk on this back when I was a graduate student, and I went up and asked her, do you have any concerns about this research being used against the gay and lesbian community? She said, yeah, I wake up every single day worrying about that because some people might misconstrue this research as saying that sexual orientation is a choice, and then that could be used to undermine the push for gay rights. She said, but if I let those concerns stop me from doing the research, or if I sweep them under the carpet because they might be politically inconvenient, then we miss out on learning about diversity variation in human sexuality. And unfortunately, Lisa's findings were used against the community in a way. So they were actually cited in some court cases arguing against why same-sex marriage shouldn't be legally protected because it's not an inborn trait. And fortunately, those you know lawsuits that cited this work in that way were not successful in their end. But, you know, I think we have to look at an example like that and see, you know, that work on sexual fluidity was so important for our understanding of human sexuality. And yes, there were risks associated with doing the work, but we also learned so much and we benefited from it. And it gave so many people just that better self-understanding of their own sexuality and their own experiences. Yeah, I agree. I think that understanding who we are on an individual basis, informed by various research, is so helpful to individuals. And I think people can take from it whatever they would like if it applies to them. Maybe some of my research findings, maybe some of Dr. Diamond's research findings wouldn't apply to them. But at the end of the day, yeah, you have this kind of understanding of human nature, which is, I think, like as psychologists, what we're really, really interested in, right? It absolutely is. So as a sexual orientation researcher, let me ask you this. How do you define sexual orientation in your research? And I think this is an important question because different people might define this term in different ways. For example, are we talking about a pattern of sexual attraction or arousal? Are we talking about sexual behavior? Are we talking about sexual identity? You know, all of these things overlap to some degree, but they're also tapping into somewhat different things. So how do you typically operationalize or define sexual orientation in your studies? I agree. It's been defined so many different ways and used in many different ways in the research literature. Uh, I've seen identity, behavior. I think as a psychologist, the core part of sexual orientation that I'm fascinated by is this kind of intrinsic feeling of attraction to men, women, other, everyone, whatever the sexual orientation may be. So it's kind of like this internal feeling. We would define it as like a sexual attraction component of sexual orientation. I've also used sexual behavior. Sometimes I've used sexual identity if I'm working with like, for example, a data set that only has sexual identity and kind of constrained by 
what others have defined sexual orientation. Yeah. And so different people, different researchers might define this in different ways. And depending on the purposes of their study, certain definitions might be more appropriate. You know, for example, if you're studying STI risk and acquisition, then you might focus more on behavior because that's the thing that's going to be most relevant in that case. So it's not to say that there's one best definition of sexual orientation, but I think this is part of the reason why some studies point to different conclusions is because they're defining it in different ways and those things don't always line up together. Now, there are a lot of different theories out there about how sexual orientation develops. And a lot of this work points to biological origins, but there are a lot of different biological factors that might be involved here. And one of them that you've done a bit of research on is what's called the fraternal birth order effect, which is basically the idea that same-sex attracted men tend to have more older brothers than heterosexual men. So what's that all about? Yeah, the fraternal birth order effect is fascinating. My PhD supervisor, along with his colleague, Ray Blanchard, published some studies a couple of years ago that really spurred more research interest into this topic. And they basically found what you said. Gay men tend to have an excess number of older brothers relative to heterosexual men on average. And the explanation that they gave for this finding has an immunological basis. And basically, the explanation is that when a mother is pregnant, she'll develop an immune response to the developing fetus. And because males have a Y chromosome that a female is not used to having, um, and this is like a an XX female and an XY male, then she develops kind of an immune response to the Y chromosome. And then over successive pregnancies, this immune response builds and uh, the fraternal birth order effect is hypothesized to result from this increasing immune response to the Y chromosome, certain proteins that are associated with the Y chromosome. And the hypothesis is that this antibody response eventually affects brain function, maybe in areas related to sexual orientation. And therefore, that male child is more likely to be gay on average than heterosexual. It is so interesting. And this finding goes back a couple of decades. You know, people have been publishing about this for quite a long time. But I think it's important to point out that just because a man has more older brothers, that doesn't necessarily mean he is necessarily gay or just because he's a firstborn child, he can't be gay, right? So there's always individual variability when we're talking about this, right? Of course. Yeah. You see it in our data all the time. So it's an average effect, right? We're looking at groups of men, not individual men in our studies. Yeah. And what I've seen in the research is that with each successive pregnancy where a woman is carrying a male child, the odds of that child being gay as an adult increase. And it's a significant effect statistically, but you know it's by no means a guarantee. So just always like to be mindful of the fact that with research in this area, there's always individual variability. Of course. This episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. We are constantly growing and changing throughout our lives, which means that getting to know yourself is a lifelong process. What we want, what we need, these are moving targets that require us to frequently rediscover ourselves. And sometimes we need a little assist along the way from someone who can help us talk things through. 
BetterHelp can connect you with a licensed therapist who can meet you where you are and help you on your journey of self-discovery. You can learn a lot about yourself and develop important skills along the way, from learning about positive coping strategies to communicating boundaries with the important people in your life. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's 100% online and flexible to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist, but you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sex and psych today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sex and psych. Now, another line of work that you've participated in looks at the role of prenatal hormone exposure on sexual orientation. And in particular, it looks at the role of androgens like testosterone. So how is testosterone exposure in the womb related to sexual orientation? Yeah, so this is a very popular explanation of the development of sexual orientation from a biological perspective. And it basically, the argument is that gay men and uh, lesbian women have been exposed to different levels of androgens in the womb when they're developing as fetuses. And because of this differing exposure, so gay men would be exposed to less androgens, lesbian women would be exposed to more androgens. Again, the brain is impacted, especially sites in the brain that are related to sexual attractions. And as a result, the individuals are more likely to be gay or lesbian. So it's a direct effect of testosterone exposure in the womb that might affect areas of the brain that are potentially related to sexual attraction. Now, related to this, I've also seen some other work looking at other what we call biomarkers of this prenatal androgen exposure. So specifically things like your finger length ratios. How familiar are you with the work in that area? And what can you tell us about finger length ratios and handedness, you know, whether you're right-handed or left-handed? How is that related to sexual orientation? And does it all go back to that prenatal hormone exposure? Yeah, well, we think it does, or at least it partly does. It's hard to measure prenatal hormones in the womb when a fetus is developing. So one of the ways that researchers have kind of gotten around that methodological constraint is by looking at what we call biomarkers or characteristics that are influenced by prenatal hormones and looking to see if in adulthood, gay men and heterosexual men, for example, or lesbian women and heterosexual women differ on these characteristics or biomarkers. And if they do, then maybe whatever mechanisms are responsible for the development of these biomarkers are also involved in the development of a sexual orientation. And so... Specifically in terms of um, handedness and finger length ratios, can you tell us a little bit about what specifically the the biomarkers look like in terms of being, say, right-handed or left-handed or the ratios of the digits? You know, what is the finding there? So in terms of uh, handedness, heterosexual men tend to have a shorter index finger relative to their ring finger. So the ratio of that is what we call the 2D40 ratio. And then heterosexual women tend to have an index finger that's similar in length to the ring finger. So their ratios are a bit higher. 
And so what some research has found is the opposite pattern in gay men. So gay men tend to have relatively more of a feminized 2D40 ratio and lesbian women tend to have more of a masculinized 2D40 ratio, although there's lots of variability in that research. Some findings are mixed. Some findings show the opposite patterns. And then in terms of handedness, there's been a couple of different findings. So I guess all of the biomarkers can have multiple mechanisms underlying them. But left-handedness has been interpreted as potentially reflective of prenatal androgen exposure and also like extreme left-handedness and extreme right-handedness. So if you only use your right hand and you basically don't use your left hand at all for various tasks, at least the tasks that we have on our measure of handedness, and then the opposite for uh, left-handedness. So if you're very exclusively using your left hand for most tasks or like little to no tasks using your right hand. So when you're talking about extreme handedness, that you're more likely to be gay or lesbian? The results there are very mixed. And I would say that the research is kind of in early stages. There's been some studies that have linked extreme right-handedness and extreme left-handedness to being gay. In women, um, there's a meta-analysis that was published in 2000, so it's a bit on the older side. It showed that lesbian women tended to be more left-handed or non-right-handed than heterosexual women. The effects for handedness were stronger in women in that study than the effects in men. Thanks for sharing that. So we're starting to see that there's a, a lot of complexity here and a lot of different things that might be potential signs or indicators of sexual orientation. And yet another potential contributor to it is genetics. And in some of the review papers you've published on the origins of sexual orientation, you've reviewed what the literature in this area says. So based on that, can you tell us whether there's really such a thing as a gay gene? And where are we in terms of our understanding of the role of genetics in sexual attraction? The short answer is, is that so far we've not been able to demonstrate that there is a gay gene. It seems that there's different sections of the various chromosomes that are associated with sexual orientation in men and in women. And that's kind of my understanding of the genetics part of the sexual orientation research, given that it's not been a large part of the research that I've done. So... I think that the genetics research has a long way to go. An interesting avenue to explore would be epigenetics, which I think has largely been unexplored in the genetic realm. Yeah, it absolutely has. And I think the just whole concept of epigenetics is fascinating. And one particularly compelling piece of evidence for it is that when you look at identical twins, sometimes they have different sexual orientations. You know, for example, one might be heterosexual and one might be gay, but they could exist, you know, kind of in any combination. Yes, there is correspondence or what we call concordance between sexuality and identical twins, right? Such that, you know, the more genes two people share in common, the more likely they are to have the same orientation. But sometimes you have people who are identical twins. They have the exact same DNA, but they have different orientations. And so the idea with epigenetics is that two people might have the same gene, but 
that gene is only expressed under certain environmental conditions. And those conditions could be if they were exposed to different hormones prenatally, for example. So, you know, that's one potential pathway where two people could have the same genes, but wouldn't necessarily share the same sexual orientation, which tells us that, you know, the search for a genetic cause of sexual orientation is a little bit complicated because it's not necessarily just about possessing a specific gene, right? Exactly. That's my understanding of the genetic literature in general and the genetic literature on sexual attractions as well. So there's lots to explore there, including, like as you said, the multiple pathways. So it seems that there's some research support too that some subsets of, for example, gay men might have one developmental pathway and another subset of gay men may have a different developmental pathway that influences the development of their sexual attractions. Yeah, and that was actually going to be my next question for you, which was, you know, to what extent do all of these things that we've been talking about overlap, right? So do you have to have the fraternal birth order effect and the prenatal androgen exposure and the genetic factors? Like, do all of these things have to line up or can it just be one or the other? I think you kind of answered that, but yeah, there seem to be different pathways, don't there? Yeah, that's what some of the research is definitely suggesting, but we don't know fully how that maps onto individual experiences of sexual orientation. It definitely doesn't seem like you need to have all of the factors, though, related to your sexual attractions in order to be, for example, like if I'm talking about it from like a purely research, like if you're in the gay group in our studies or anything like that. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to have, you know, an excess number of older brothers and be left-handed and have biomarkers that might indicate an alteration in prenatal androgen exposure. Definitely. Yeah. And I guess the way I like to think of it is that, you know, if you look at the gay community broadly, it's a very diverse group of people. And there might be different types or different, you know, ways of, of being gay, right? There is a more gender conforming kind, there's a more gender non conforming kind, and these might have very different pathways behind them, is just one example. And I've seen a couple of studies, there, there hasn't been much work looking at this yet, but a couple of studies that have linked the more gender conforming and non conforming kind, sexual position preferences to different genetic factors. And so that suggests to us that when it comes to understanding the origins of sexual orientation, it's very complex. And this idea that there's just one thing that you can isolate and say, that's why people are gay. It's, it's something that defies simplistic explanations like that. I totally agree. Yeah, it seems to be a big puzzle, which is fascinating. And there's so much variability that's really cool to experience, not only from like a research perspective, but also from like a, a personal perspective. So I think the research will continue and hopefully will provide more insight into the development of sexual orientation. Yep. And adding further complexity to that is the role that society and culture play in the way that sexual orientation is expressed, right? Because it's not necessarily consistent from one culture to the next. And I did a previous episode where we talked a bit about this with Dr. Paul Vasey, where we talked about his cross-cultural work in Samoa. And, you know, sexual orientation and gender expression, these things 
can be very, very different across cultures and societies. So you always have to look at this through a biopsychosocial lens. But I have one more question for you about this subject since we're running short on time, which is why most of the research on the origins of sexual orientation has focused on men. You know, why do we have less research on sexual orientation and women? I've tried so much, so hard to include women in my research because I found as I was going through the literature that there wasn't as much research on women. It's hard to know why exactly, maybe because the previous researchers were men themselves and they were kind of fascinated by their own sexual orientations. Um, And as a woman myself, I became fascinated in women's experiences of sexual orientation. So I tried to incorporate that. Uh, That's one possible reason. Could also be where the data took us. So, you know, the fraternal birth order effect seems to be mostly seen at least in a very consistent manner within men. So, you know, the research kind of carried on kind of in a data-driven fashion, um, exploring the fraternal birth order effect more and then not exploring things in women more. So I think maybe those are probably two potential explanations as to why women's sexual orientation has not been explored as much. Yeah, and I would throw just one more out there, which is that for a long time in the literature, scientists, researchers have talked about men's sexuality as being more fixed than women's and women's as being more flexible, right? And, you know, one example of that would be this idea that women are inherently bisexual. You know, a lot of people have bought into that idea over the years. And for that reason, they may think that women's sexuality is more complicated to study than men's. And that may have also influenced some of the decisions that researchers have made in terms of how they've chosen to study this particular topic. We know that just in general, in sexuality research and biomedical research more broadly, women have often been excluded because of this perception that they're too complicated because of their fluctuating hormones and all of this other stuff. So we know that that is also part of the story here as well, or at least that's likely to be. I agree. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Melvina. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? If you Google me, Malvina Skorska, I have a website. I also keep my Google Scholar list updated. I think those are probably the two best sources of information about where my research is currently at or what I'm doing research-wise. And I will be sure to share links to those in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thanks to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>